0: Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die.
1: Best will hit deep the right. It's going to be it. Way back
2: there. Oh. oh. Welcome to Hardball.
0: Today, I consider,
2: I consider myself, myself the luckiest, luckiest man, man on, the on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Back to the
1: Conversations that span almost 20 years.
2: It is 9 46 p.m.
1: with the men who saw and made that history. Andy into his
2: wind up. Here's the pitch.
1: Many of whom are no longer with us.
2: Squirt out and missed the perfect game.
1: Stories from the 1930s. Ball deep, to the 21st century. At-
2: This is Hardball.
0: Dad, you want to have a catch?
2: Welcome
1: into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and today we continue our trek through Major League Baseball's history one conversation at a time. Before I introduce you to today's guest, I just want to thank you for finding us. If you're a first-time listener, I hope after this episode, you might go back and listen to some, if not all, of the previous 35. If you have returned, thank you for that as well. It's been a while, I know. Not sure how many new episodes I will put into what they call a season, but I'm lining up former players, managers, and front office personnel for some new conversations and digging through some of the old ones to get those out as well. For those who don't know, I started recording these 22 years ago. Marvin Miller and a few others were the first as part of a counterprogramming baseball show that went up against the Atlanta Braves Network pregame show, which, ironically, I co-host today. Others, like today's, have been recorded in the last couple of years. As I've said in the past, I don't consider these interviews... I much prefer the attempt at a conversation, hopefully setting up an environment where it turns into a couple of men talking about individual careers, but more importantly, perhaps having it turn into an audio history of not only the game in a particular piece of time, but a glimpse into social history of the time as well. I know there are a lot of choices in the podcast world. Believe me, I partake. And I know time becomes a factor as you weave in and out of your choices as to what to put into your rotation. I hope Hardball finds its way to subscribe status for you. And on top of that, I will ask just a couple of things from you to help spread the word. Hit subscribe and you will get notices of new episodes as they come out. And what will really help is you taking a minute to hit like and give us a review on Apple. That's the star thing. And if even compelled to go this far, write a quick review at the same place. Lastly, if you participate in social media, maybe put a link to Hardball up or share a Facebook post or retweet if you see something about us on Twitter. If you have a few friends who are baseball fans, let them know we exist, with a text or even a phone call. The response to Season 1's first 35 episodes was very positive, and thank you for that. I will be honest, there are times when you wonder if anyone is listening, and more than that, I wonder if anyone actually cares about hearing from these men. It seems like this podcast might be too boring for what is going on in the real world. Screaming and over-the-top in the sports world still seems to be winning the day in this format. But I'll put a few more up, together with the best in the business, Keith Bolito. thanks Keith, and see what happens. Thanks again, and you can contact me at cjdomino at net or just send a hit to at Chris Domino on Twitter to tell me who you might want to hear from coming up on Hardball. On to today's guest. Ronald Ames Gidry is one of those men who wears his hometown pride and roots on his sleeve. Born in Lafayette, Louisiana, it was teammate Dick Tidrow, by the way, who hit Gidry with the Gator moniker in his first stint in the majors. Back in 1975, upon his introduction to his new bullpen mates, Gidry played baseball and ran track in high school, with track looking like it would be his entry into the world of college athletics. But in one of the greatest that-can't-be-true scouting stories I've ever heard, a man named Allie Donald, a Louisiana-born three-time world champion with the Yankees of the late 30s and early 40s, saw Gidry and recommended the Yankees draft him. Dooley himself sported a 660 winning percentage, that's 65 and 33 in his career, and in one of the best twists in stories like these, Gidry ended up winning 13 games in a row in 1978 to, of course, break Dooley's all time Yankee record of 12. You will hear Ron talk about how close he came to quitting before he turned into one of the best in the game the men he played with, for, and against. His relationship with Yogi Berra, a man who, like Ron, didn't have much interest in talking about himself, but rather about others. Bobby Cox, Goose Gossage, George Steinbrenner, and sticking around to the very end as Ron will read from his book, Gator, My Life in Pinstripes, as he describes the incredible 1978 season and why he thinks that collection of personalities was able to win the World Series. Oh, and the Louisiana Lightning nickname? That came from a fan sign in Yankee Stadium on a day that Guidry started. And Hall of Famer and one of my favorite hardball guests ever. Go back and listen to this one if you get a chance. Phil Rizzuto making it official from the booth that day forward. His 18 strikeout game against the Angels in 1978? Still the Yankee record. His 651 all-time winning percentage, 170 and 91, is still top 25 all-time and just one of a handful of pitchers making their debut after 1970 in that top 25 list. Five postseason wins, three complete games. The man who started the one-game playoff win versus the Red Sox in that 78 season, a game that he, Bucky Dent, Chris Chambliss, and Greg Nettles all told me was the most nervous they have ever been before a game. Gidry, by the way, calmed himself down so much he took a nap under a trainer's table at 10 a.m. that morning for the 1 o'clock first pitch. Two-time World Series champion, four-time All-Star, five-time Gold Glove winner, a Cy Young and a Yankee captain, and of course his number retired, the number 49 by the club in 2003. The man that Willie Randolph called the pound-for-pound toughest competitor he's ever played with or saw, Gidry made the most of his 5'10", 160-pound maybe frame by wearing his heart and game on his left shoulder. I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks again for tuning in. Ron Guidry.
0: One of the craziest moments was when uh, Billy Martin walked out to the mound. I was trying to complete my first major league game. He asked me how I felt. I asked him, do you really want to know? He said, yes. I said, I think you better get your ass off my mound so I can finish my game. And he looked at me and he said, you got it. Yeah. year in 76 i almost quit because we're sending you down and i asked why and they told me oh, you're not pitching but then take a rocket scientist to figure that one out, you know. So you you you're thinking to yourself, well, if that's what they think about you, then they must not think about you highly at all. This is unbelievable. I had made a decision to go home, but my wife taught me how to go on She said, "Give it one more try," and I did. And you know, but things changed after that. It didn't change for me as a reliever. It changed because I got stuck in the starting rotation, and then that's how I eventually made a name for myself.
1: Ron Guidry, coming out of the shower, as Bill White said a while ago, weighs about 153 pounds, but he will bring the ball to the plate well in excess of 90 miles an hour. It's the center, river.
2: To Reggie Smith, Ensign, and Ron Guidry on the ropes most of the
0: night, yet they complete game victory as the Yankees defeat the Dodgers by the score of 5 1.
1: This man's a world champion. This man's a Cy Young Award winner. This guy's one of the best the Yankees ever trotted out. He also has a book out called Gator My Life in Pinstripes. And this guy had an interesting life and career. We're joined today by Ron Guidry. Ron, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Uh,
2: well, thanks for uh, having me on.
1: Can I just – I want to jump to the end first, if that's okay. The idea that you played your entire career in a Yankee uniform, how important, what does that actually mean to you this many years later?
2: Um. Well, it kind of just – it reminds you of how the old time was, you know, when, when the guys that were before you, all your idols and all your heroes, that's what they used to do. They played with one team. And uh, for me to go through um, – You know, my whole career being a New York Yankee uh, was—I always just felt like it was a great compliment. You know Mm -hmm. that I was able to wear that uniform for so long.
1: And one of the other things, you know, I'm sure Yankee fans know, you were also co-captain of that team for a few years.
2: Uh, Yeah, as a pitcher, that's quite a quite Mm -hmm. an accomplishment. You know, to be uh, thought of as a as a a captain, uh, Willie Randolph and I. But you know, we we started out as young kids. We were the new kids on the block. And then, you know, so many years later, you're the old man (laughs) in the house. So, you know, it was just fitting that, uh, you know, the experience and the, and the reward of being a a captain was given to, uh, you know, the most tenured guys, some of the most respected guys there. Uh, You know, later on, it goes to Mattingly, you know, because that's how, that's how it goes. Uh, You know, Mattingly came up, through the um, you know through the minor leagues, he he wore a Yankee uniform the whole time, and, and that's how it goes. You know all of the nostalgia, and the tradition, and the pride that goes with wearing a New York Yankee uniform. All of that kind, of, you know wrapped up in a boat.
1: Can I tell you what I really liked about the book? And again, the book is Gator My Life in Pinstripes. You really are you speak very highly, honestly, uh, about your teammates and about the situation, season to season. You know, who affected you? Who influenced you? It was really interesting because I don't know how many times you've been asked to write a book. I don't know. Why was the timing more right now maybe than ever before?
2: Um. Well, first of all, I'm growing older a lot faster, so you want to try to get it out of the way. Um, which, you know, I was just approached, um, you know, by editors and by publishers. Um, I had just come out with the book. Uh, you know driving Mr. Yogi that hadn't been out very long right and 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 because of the because of the relationship that Yogi and I had um, you know the old and the new Mm -hmm. um, and you know you give a little bit back to you know the tradition so to speak and I guess they just they said that they felt like you know while you were there in people's minds it might have been a great time to come out if you had any ideas about writing the book and i really didn't i honestly hadn't thought of it much but the more they spoke to me about it then the more i started to you know to to say well you know maybe right now is a good time because maybe later on you're not going to be bothered with that you know right. maybe i just would want to be you know kind of like left alone you know, to enjoy what time I have left and not have to worry about doing anything. Because you have to travel a lot when you do this, something like that. So for a good while I was traveling, but uh, that's how it it happened, you know, and I'm glad, you know, that I I got it out of the way because I'm pretty sure that's going to be the last one.
1: Well, I'm going to ask you about Yogi, but what's also interesting is it's the 40th anniversary of that 1978 season on top of everything else. I, I don't know if it feels like 40 years to you, but I remember watching that game one sixty three on a Monday uh-huh. afternoon. Like as a as a young as a kid, I remember uh-huh. watching that game because I lived in the New York area at that point. Does it does it feel like forty years?
2: No, <laughs> time just passes by a lot faster as you grow older. <laughs> and um, you know, you you listen to other people tell you that, and you don't pay attention to it. But then you wake up one morning and you realize it's true. Yeah. It's
1: been forty years. Bucky is a, a friend of the show, and it's really funny uh-huh. because rightfully so, Bucky gets credit for the home run. Right. I, I think what gets lost a little bit, though, uh, that's your 25th win, and you're going on three days rest that day. Right.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and you know, you you start. You know, I I kind of got away from your first questions about you know talking about my mm-hmm. teammates in the book. Yeah. Look, if your teammate, if if it's not for your teammates, you can't accomplish very much. You know, all the accolades I get, it's only because of the teammates that I had playing behind because they make the plays, they score the runs, they do everything that you need to to win a baseball game. I can only do so much, but, you know, I do half, they do the other half. If they don't do their half, my half doesn't mean anything. So, you know, and, and it's like with Bucky. You know, Bucky hit, you know, one of the biggest home runs in, in, in Yankee history, and he will always be known for that, And and that's what... That was what was fun about those teams is that it didn't make a difference what game it was. Somebody was always going to be a hero. And, you know, for that game there, it was Bucky. And, um, yeah, 40 years later, it, you know, it's the highlights are still shown. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I, I keep teasing Bucky. I keep telling Bucky, <laughs> you know what? One of these days that ball's not going to go over the wall.
1: <laughs> don't you also – don't you tell Nettles – uh, if not for you, he, he he's not a household name.
2: Oh yeah, well uh, you know that it's the camaraderie that we shared, okay, uh, throughout the year that year, like uh, in '78 especially. Uh, you know, that Nettles. You know, we'd always go out after the game, and you know, have a drink or two. And sometimes Nettles would get carried away; he'd miscount how many drinks he was having, and, and like then I'd be pitching the next day, and he'd toss me the ball you know, and tell me I wouldn't let him hit too many ground balls down the third base line today because I'm not feeling too well. So you go like, okay, no problem. So you pitch away all day. You know, you give him a day off. So, you know, like for that World Series game in 78 against the Dodgers, yeah, I know I didn't have great stuff, but he came up to me right in the dugout before the game, and he said to me, you can let them hit the ball all they want down the third baseline. I feel great tonight. Let's go get them. And, and that's how it was. And and I, I did. You know, I mean, I, I that was my normal pitching. You know, if I'd have had better stuff, they might have not have hit the ball as much down there. But it didn't make a difference. I always trusted him. He was the best third baseman. And uh, he made the place.
1: There's a story about Goose Gossage early on. Uh, in his Yankee career, and it wasn't going very well. It wasn't a very long period of time. But is is it true that you basically, you know, you you and Goose had a moment early in that season, did you not, to make sure that everything was clear, we're good?
2: Oh, You mean mean when I didn't want him to come in the game? Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) You know, when we got him, he was just trying too hard. He was trying to be somebody else and not just be Goose Gossage, okay? He can just walk out there and not even throw, and people would just say, oh, I'm going to wait till tomorrow. <laughs> but he, he wanted to dominate. He wanted to go out, and he didn't want you to hit the ball, okay? And that's not, that's not really his strong suit. His soft, strong suit is throwing the ball over the plate, making you swing, and he'll get you out. But when he came to us, I think he just cried too hard. Um, every time he'd go out, it, it was something. I mean, it was it, we could have been up by 10 runs. He'd blow it. I, I don't care what it is. He just tried too hard. So, you know, for me, you know, there were a couple of games in there early that I was winning when I came out that he didn't hold the lead. So I went out one night, and I'm pitching a fairly good game, and, I, you know, I'm throwing the ball well. And I give up a base hit, like, in the ninth inning. And I know he's warming up because I saw him. And and Martin walked out to the mound, and, and <laughs> I told Billy, I said, before he you say a word, I said, if you plan to take me out and bring that son of a bitch into this game here, I said, Friday when I pitch again, I'm going to throw one pitch and fake an injury. I said, because until he starts getting guys out, I'll finish my own game. And he never said a word. He looked at me, and he went. Okay, you got it. And he left. And, and of course, you know, as a, as a closer, you don't get those guys up and sit them down. They're in a the game when they throw. And before Billy got back in the dugout, Goose was in the bullpen phone. He was already calling the dugout. And when Billy got back in the dugout, Billy told him, look, he said, when the game's over, go talk to 49. So when I got the last, the next two guys out, the game's over. I grabbed my jacket, I ran into the clubhouse, and I sat in my locker, and I faced the door because I know he was going to – I know he was hot. I mean, I'd be hot too, but he walked in, and, I mean, his face was just red as a tomato. And he took two steps, man, and he was coming with that face, you know, and like, I'm going to kill you. And I just held out my hand, you know, and I said, that'll be far enough. And I said the exact same thing I told to Billy. And he just looked at me, and he, he had his finger pointed at me, and he went, you know what, you're right. He said, the way I've been pitching, I wouldn't even want me in those games. He said, you're right. He said, let's go have a beer. I said, okay, let's go have a beer. And, and you know, like, that's how him and I became really great friends because probably within a week of that happening, it's like a light switch went off. I mean, he just boom. He had two seasons, the first month and a half where he couldn't get anybody out, and then for the next three and a half months, you couldn't touch him.
1: And, and those numbers bear it out, by the way. He threw a, he threw a sub-two ERA after yeah. that night I mean, that you're you talking go, about.
2: If you go back and check, you, you'll see. You know I mean, the, the stats speak for themselves. It was night and day. And isn't it I crazy? Mean, the light switch went off, and you could not touch him.
1: It. And it's perfect because in that game we talked about, 163, the one-game playoff with the Red Sox, he's on the mound. To finish it?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. Yep, he was.
1: You know, uh, Ron, the other couple of things, when you got drafted by the Yankees, the Yankees were going through a bad spell. You talked about young guys coming up through the system, and there was a couple of trades and acquisitions, Bucky and, and Goose. But there was that stretch in the you know early 70s where the Yankees were not a good baseball team, and you guys are working your way through the minor leagues. I think you were in the minors for about four years. I think you had cups of coffee in 75 and 76. All right. Could you guys tell that you were... You were playing good enough baseball that if this core gets to the majors, we might have a shot pretty quickly?
2: Well, I, I mean, you know, my memory might not be too good at, at my age, but let me go back and think. You know, in 75, the team was, um, wasn't all that great, and we were playing the last year at Shea Stadium. Yep. The very next year in 76 was the uh, opening of the uh, new Yankee Stadium, you know, refurbished Mm -hmm. Yankee Stadium. So when we left spring training, we made the trade for Bucky. Um, We also made the trade uh, to Pittsburgh for Willie Randolph. Um, Let's see, there was something else that we did. We um, We got something else. I'm trying to remember who I'm missing.
1: Was was Lou there?
2: We, we, yeah, Lou was there. Yeah, Pinella. Yeah, we had a core guys, right? Okay. Um, but I'm I'm missing, wait because that's the, oh, we got Rivers and Figueroa from the Angels. Okay. Okay. So all of a sudden, the team from '75 changed in '76 drastically. You know, we had we had. Good pitching. We we already had catfish. We had um uh let's see we had uh, uh Doyle Alexander Doc Ellis Doc Ellis we Kenny,
1: had Kenny Holtzman.
2: Holtzman maybe, yeah. And then we add Siggy. So, you know, we, we we added um another pitcher to a, a fairly good staff already but then what we did with the the everyday players was you know Rivers comes in center field and Mickey was as good as anybody at that mm-hmm. time and then all of a sudden you get Bucky who was a great fundamental shortstop then you get Willie Randolph who was you know you didn't know too much about him because he you know he hadn't played a lot
1: he was tw- but- I think he's 21 that year Willie
2: Yeah, he was very young, okay, and he was, you know, just up from the minor league. If I'm not mistaken, he might have finished the previous year with Pittsburgh. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay, but what I'm saying is New York thought highly of him, regardless of where he was at, that that's going to be our future second baseman. So they made the trade, they got him, and he panned out to be the guy that everybody thought he was going to be. Mm So all of a sudden, you change the complexity of the team from 75 to 76, and you go to the World Series, you lose, you get steamrolled by the Reds. But then the next year, things change again because you add Reggie. You still had the same basic guys, and then you get uh, Mike Torres from um, Oakland. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, because of the tourist trade is actually the way that I got my start as a starter eventually, not, not right away, but eventually. So when you move, when you move yourself into the rotation, plus you get the guy that you had to make an emergency start for, and he's, he's an established player. Then all of a sudden your, your pitching staff becomes so much better. And then, and then the other thing is we, even though we lost to the reds in 76, we get Don Gullett as a free agent the next year in 77. So our pitching staff went from a good one to a very good one.
1: You guys also, that was Billy's first full year, wasn't it, in 76? Uh, in 76, yeah. Yeah. He, he
2: came up in the at the end of right. 75. Uh, he replaced Bill Verdon.
1: What did you think of Billy? What was your relationship with Billy?
2: Oh, not good at the beginning. <laughs> Billy didn't like rookies. He didn't trust them. Not, not liking them is not the right word. He didn't trust rookies in tight situations. Mm-hmm. So, like, for me, as a, as a closer in AAA under Bobby Cox, how am I going to be able to eventually do that if I never get the chance to pitch in games that mean something? Because any time that I go in, it's always going to be 10 up or 10 down. Right. So and it's tough to pitch that way when you are used to pitching, you know, with the bases loaded and nobody out or or something. Mm -hmm. But the game's always on the line as a closer. You're in there to protect something. And so for me, you know, he would sometimes I'd get in a game and you know pitch an inning here, an inning there, but it wouldn't mean anything. And then all of a sudden, you you know, he'd warm you up for six or seven days in a row with, with, with never getting in a game. And then all of a sudden, he gets you up when you don't have anything because you've already thrown seven days in a row, and he puts you in. And then if you give up two runs, then he's mad at you because you gave up two runs. So it, it was always, you know, hard with him to try to make that break to, to, to where you could earn his respect. And I didn't get it until uh, I became an emergency starter. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're looking at me like, well, wait a minute. We have a guy out (laughs) of the bullpen that's pitching into the ninth inning. And he's done it four times when none of our starters have pitched for two months and haven't gotten into the ninth inning.
1: And being presented the opportunity. Yeah, being presented the opportunity.
2: Right. So, you know, all of a sudden when you get in there and then, you know, you start doing the job, then something changes but it only changed because it it's in that story is in the book too about the night where i told him if he was going to take me out of the game that uh you know it wouldn't be too good for him but that's the first time that that he uh i, I was winning uh, i was beating Kansas City i think uh 4-5 to nothing with two outs in the uh, one out in the ninth inning and i gave up a hit he came out and i told him i said you know if – before you say a word, if you take me out of this game, I ain't pitching over here anymore for you. You know, um, and I added a few more derogatory remarks behind that. But, you know, the thing is, I, what I did was I stood up to him to let me stay in the game. Mm-hmm. I didn't just say, you know, okay, fine, this is good. But but the difference in that game there, than all the, the preceding three or four games, you see, when he came out of the dugout, he had already made the call to get to bring in the reliever. So there's not very much you can say. Mm-hmm. But that game there against Kansas City, uh, because I was actually pitching a shutout, and that's what I wanted to do: pitch, get my first shutout. And and he didn't say he didn't make the call until he got to the mound. And when he got to the mound, he asked me what what I thought, and that's how the conversation kind of got
1: started. So let me ask you this though: had you because standing up to Billy, look, Billy's reputation was Billy will yeah. fight you any place, anywhere, anytime. Oh yeah. So how much respect well, do told, you think? I
2: told Munson not to go too far when he came up to the mound because I, I was afraid it might happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so how much respect do you think he all of a sudden now has to, that you that you and rightfully so, by the way, because
2: well, he's... I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what happened because up until that time, he had already made the decision. Okay. And he, 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 he'd make the call. But when I told him that night, I think it's best that you get your ass off my mouth so I can finish my game. And he said, fine. I think from that point on, I had everything that I needed because he never ever took me out of a game again until he asked me how I felt. And I always was honest with him. If I thought I could get you out, I said, I'm fine. If, if, if I thought there was a well, if there was a doubt in my mind about getting a guy out who was coming to bat on the on deck circle, I told him so. Because you gotta be honest with yourself. If you're pitching in a game and, and there's a guy that's coming up either the next batter or the batter after that, if he's already three for four or three for three offer you, what are your chances of getting him out? You know and I know pitchers want to stay in right. and and we always wanted to do that but I mean if I haven't gotten a guy out all day what the hell's the use of me trying to just stay in because I want to stay in and, mutual, and I would tell yeah, him the mutual respect is that you're him, honest look, right and I would just tell him look I haven't gotten this guy out or the next guy out all day so you make the call I can get this guy out but the next guy I can't right you, I haven't and, gotten him out all day
1: You said something interesting because people here obviously this is going to be running in Atlanta um, Bobby Cox. Bobby makes the move up in '77. A lot of you know, right. Bobby's After. like Bobby's the most famous guy in Atlanta that people really didn't know a lot about until he became Bobby right. Cox Hall of Fame manager. He's part of the right. Yankee organization. You're with him in '76, right. and both of you guys come up in '77.
2: Right. Yeah, he was our first base coach yep. in '77.
1: What can you tell me yeah, about
2: him? He, well, he was a great manager. You, you could see because I always, I always credit going to Syracuse in AAA the the two year the two half years cuz i spent i spent one year in Syracuse going up and down and i got credit for one year of major league service because of all the time i was up and down but the one whole year that i actually spent in AAA under bobby is the time that i got most of the experience that i ever received that one time about pitching from him and the other guys that were there, from the catchers that were there, from the players that were there. Because we had several guys on that Syracuse team who had been up and down mm-hmm. to New York before. And through them, you get a lot of uh, information. You get a lot of help. Because if if you don't help your teammate, it, because both of you guys are going to go in the same direction. You're not going in opposite direction. Everybody's goal is to go to a World Series. Well, they're not going to go by themselves. I'm not going to go by myself. I need them. They need me. So if everybody's going in the same direction, the more help that we give everybody that needs it, the better off the team would be. And that's how it was on the Cox. That's what he did. He talked, they talked, and, and we had great success. I think we won the title two years in a row that I was there. I never I never played in the championship game because I was always yeah. up with New York. But the Syracuse Chiefs won the titles there.
1: What what's the reality of being a guy postseason game in Yankee Stadium? I, I don't know what your first time walking in because you played as you said in that dump Chase Stadium. Uh-huh. But you go over to Yankee Stadium, what's the night before a playoff or a World Series game, when you know you're going to pitch in Yankee Stadium? Do you feel ghosts? Do you, do, are, can you comprehend the history? Do you need to put it in a box and put it away? What, what was your reality? Yeah.
2: No, you know, I, I remember, I just remember walking into Yankee Stadium the first day that I got there in 76, when I got called up. When I walked into the new stadium, uh, when I got called up the first time, uh, I just remember how that, how that blue stadium, how that green grass. I mean, and, and I just reflected of I could see Dimaggio and Mantle running in center field. I could see Yogi catching. I could see Pepitone and and uh I could see Richardson. I could see Quebec Boy. You know, I could see all of those guys playing those positions that I all I knew about, mm-hmm. and and that was m- more like. Breathtaking to me. It was one of the most magnificent sights I think I had ever seen. So, you know, as you're walking down the tunnel, go to the locker room, you're thinking about all of those guys that had walked that tunnel before. Then you get in the locker room and you realize where you're at. You know, I kind of got a lot of the nervousness and a lot of the tension out that first day because the only Thing that I was there for was to pitch for the New York Yankees. That's all that says in my contract. I get paid for services rendered, and it's pitching for the New York Yankees. That's it. Nothing else. So for me, I got I got rid of all of that stuff real early, and I and I'm not a I wasn't a very nervous guy anyway. So like the night before my first playoff game in um, that was the Kansas City mm-hmm. game, and uh, you know you're going like okay, it's game such and such. It's the same game that I threw, the same kind of game I threw the last time, just on a bigger stage.
1: And You know, they got – go ahead. No, I was going to say, and people know the Red Sox. uh, I was going to mention, for those who don't know, go look at what the Yankee-Kansas City thing was about for a few years.
2: Oh, yeah, we we had just as much as a rivalry with them as we had with Boston. I think it was just more pronounced with Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but yet, at, with Kansas City, it was the same. I mean, we, you know, because both teams were great. Both those teams, Kansas City and Boston, were great teams. Uh, you know, some of the best teams that I ever had to pitch against were those two teams. Uh, but it, it only attests to how good our team was, right. too, because we beat those guys more often than we lost to them.
1: You know what's interesting? You're honest about seeing some of the ghosts and just understanding. Good for you, understanding the history of it. But if I would have told you, as you're a, a kid, 1975, 1976, you come up in '77, and it looks like you're gonna you're gonna stick and it's gonna work. Um, your relationship with Yogi, and I, I'm assuming with Whitey, because there hadn't really been a lefty money pitcher in and around Yankee Stadium since Whitey. Uh,
2: I I didn't think about. It. I can't really. Comment too much about that. I never thought about it that way. But I, mean, it- I just know that they were good pitchers there. I mean, even though they had some bad years. Look, one of the best guys that pitched there didn't have great teams was Mel Stottleman. Yeah, you're right. If Mel would have, if Mel, and Mel had a pretty good career there with teams who were bad. So if Mel would have been at a time where he'd have had teams like what we had, or if he'd have been there when White and them. Uh, I don't know how many games that
1: man could have won. You, you do get a reputation, or I guess my point was with Whitey, he had a reputation of being a big game pitcher, and it had been a while because the Yankees didn't really play for a stretch uh-huh. in a lot of big games. Uh, how much? Do you, how much do you sort of revel in the idea that people talk about you being a big game pitcher, being a postseason? That, that's a big deal, and to do it in a Yankee uniform in the I brightest. Don't know.
2: Chris, if they start talking like that, I generally walk away. <laughs>
1: Is it because it's just it's too much of a team game to really to have those types of conversations? Is that what it is?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I'm 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 a pretty modest guy anyway, and like I said, it, it's only because you know people talk about what you did, but you know, it, I only did it because of the teammates that I had the privilege to play with. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, when you look at the game Nettle had in that World Series, you look at what Bucky did in that playoff game. You look at what Goose did, you know, when he was there. And, and there's so many other guys, you know, that you play with. If they don't do their jobs when I'm trying to do mine, it won't work.
1: And Shambler's hitting a and big the, home run, getting you to the right. World Series. And yeah. The,
2: and the only reason why you come out with what you come out with is because they're there. They're behind you.
1: Tell me about Thurman, because is it true the, 70, it's the 78 World Series? You guys won the one game playing with and now you got to go to the World Series. Well You guys are down 2 nothing in that one. Did Thurman have one of those uh, yeah. locker room moments that people sort of talk about?
2: It, it, it's not that he had a moment because, you know, um, he wouldn't talk very much openly, you know, to the team. It, it was like he kind of reminded me of the old commercial like the EF Hutton. <laughs> when EF Hutton speaks, you listen. You know, that's kind of like what it was with him. He didn't talk a lot. But it's like when he started to talk, everybody just dropped what they were doing and paying attention. And the, and the thing that he was upset about that night when we were down 2-0 and was, was we were still the defending world champions. And we hadn't played like we knew we were capable of playing. I mean, we had, we had gone to Boston. We had beat Boston four games in a row. We went to Boston again. We beat them in a one-game playoff. We beat Kansas City, you know, and and it's like, okay, well, we're back to the World Series now. It's like we weren't trying. You know, we were. Don't get me wrong. We were because they beat us the first two games. But it's like he was upset that we weren't playing as well oh. as everyone knew we could play. Is it- and he said he said a few words about, you know, about playing and and. You know, if we lose, we lose. But if we lose, make them beat us. Let's not beat ourselves.
1: And, and again, when a guy – look, it's it's probably the best message. It's not jump on my back, make guarantees, watch what I'm about to do. It, it, no. it is interesting being able to say, if we get beat, they were better. But let's make sure right. that they beat us.
2: Right. Let's make them beat us. Let's not beat ourselves. And, and, you know, that was basically how we were looking at it. We had, you know, we, we had two games where we nothing went our way. Okay, fine. So let's change that. You know, now all of a sudden Greg has this great game. But the whole defense was great that night that I pitched. <coughs> Nettles, excuse me. Nettles made some great plays, but they turned a lot of double plays. Uh, Bucky made some great plays. Brian Dahl made some great plays. The whole defensive team made great plays all night long. So we won. And then all of a sudden, you know, the next night, you got the uh, – uh, I think that's the night where they get the uh, the call at first base with the Reggie thing. Yep. Okay, fine. You know, when people say, well, tell me about it. Look, the umpire said he was safe. What more do you want me to see? <laughs> you know, so, but you win that game, you tie it, and now all of a sudden – you know, momentum switches. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, the next night you go out there and you lash out 17, 18 hits. That doesn't make the other team feel good because now they got to win the last two games to win the World Series. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, deep down inside, they're thinking about the pitching, you know, who are we going to face again and everything else. So, you know, it was pretty tough. But then we go on to win, and it was fitting that, You know, Catfish pitches the winning game that year after he goes through a a summer of recuperation from the shoulder injury he has. You know, and he comes back and he wins six games in September. People forget things like that.
1: Yeah, there's a story, and then there's always nine stories behind (laughs) that story. Oh, yeah. What did you think of Reggie?
2: What did I think of Reggie? Yeah. What do you mean?
1: (laughs) What, What was your relationship?
2: Well, it was okay. I mean, we're teammates. I mean, he's not the easiest guy to get along with. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, he's a teammate. Uh I think we talk more today than we did when we were playing. Yeah. But, you know, Reg is Reggie. You uh, he's not you know, he's not like most guys.
1: Yeah. Well, and and look, at the end of the day, it, it's funny you said about your contract. Your job is to pitch for the for the Yankees. His job is to hit for the Yankees. Not everybody sure. has to right. You don't have to be going for beers with everybody yeah. on the team.
2: We don't have to like each other, but we got to play
1: together. Yeah, Can, Ron. Let me just ask you very quickly: when when Thurman passes, and I, and I lived up in that area then, so I certainly know. Especially with the Yankee success, he's the captain of that team. Um, you know, I, I how the news trickled down to players. I'm not really sure if you guys were all gathered together at that point, but but how devastating uh, is that as a as a well, teammate, as a friend?
2: It just, you know, it closes the chapter on one year because after that you don't, you know, you know, you talk about, okay you know, when you become a Yankee, everything is about winning and playing. And, you know, that's that's the story when you're young, you know, you everybody talks about the winning and playing the game and all of that stuff. But then you realize at some point there are more important things than just the game. You know, there's... There's people that you that are more important than the game. And, you know, when we lost him, you realize that the season doesn't mean very much mm-hmm. after something like that happens. And the, the 79 season, it wasn't – we we weren't going to go anywhere anyway. We had a lot of holes. Uh, we weren't playing all of that well. We had a lot of deficiencies. The pitching staff was in shambles. I mean – Tommy John and I, you know, we, we were there, but th- there was not not very much behind us because it was being rebuilt. Right. So just taking him, you know, out, is just like your grandfather used to tell you. If you if you ever owned a truck, I mean, it could have been old and dilapidated. If it was running, you leave it alone. But if you take off one uh, cylinder, um, you know it's not going to run properly and that's what happened when you take away a, uh, an important part of our team like that it won't function properly anymore
1: what um, you and Steinbrenner because George is it's really interesting I've heard, I've spoken to a lot of your teammates and a lot of guys who played in the era of George and later with George and then in the 90s with George. It's really interesting when guys talk about him. I will tell you my quick thought. When I go down to the spring training facility in Tampa, and I know stories behind the scenes where George helped out people and he didn't let it be known. Mm -hmm. He did it quietly. Mm -hmm. He had great, unbelievable respect, whether it's at that stadium Mm -hmm. in Tampa, the displays and making sure that you guys are honored the way that he, and and respecting the past before he was ever even around. I I give him credit for, for everything you could say about him. That guy respected the hell out of the New York Yankees.
2: Oh, he did. He respected everybody that wore the uniform. He might have bitched and moaned and barked and yelled and and tried to gnaw your head off. But the most amazing thing is, like, if he would come in in a meeting, because he'd call a meeting. It's not most certainly we didn't call a meeting. But if we if we lose two or three games in a row, we had a meeting because we were playing horseshit, you know. So he comes in and he starts pointing fingers, and he he might point his finger at me, chew me out in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then leave the room. I'll walk out the hall, and I'll go in the hall, and he'll come over to me, and he'll ask me how I'm doing, is there anything you need, how's the family. He'd go through the whole list of the family, ask me if they're, if they're okay, if we need anything, is there anything he can do. If, if if you need something, you call me. But he didn't want to say that in front of everybody, okay? and, and But that's how he was. I always said that. he. he he doesn't want to be known as the guy that has the white hat. He wants to be the guy that has the black hat mm-hmm. because his bark is worse than his bite. Right.
1: And he was a great character. But Look it, in New York City, right. that that character plays. Yeah,
2: yeah. If you if you're a goody goody guy, you ain't going very far. Right. Okay. So and and that's what he wanted. He wanted us to 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 stand up to him. He he wanted to be a bad guy, but he wanted us to stand up to him. If he would chew us out and if we'd turn our our backs and we'd cower in our locker room, he felt like he didn't have a guy that could beat Boston. You know, that's the guy that he wanted. He wanted guys who would stand up to him because in his estimation of himself, he was the toughest guy you were ever going to (laughs) face. But if you stand up to him, you could most certainly stand up to anybody else. It's
1: an interesting philosophy to be a leader because – uh, again, you can play it both ways, but but I always thought the Steinbrenner role, the public figure up in New York City, he reveled in the idea that he could fire Billy if he wanted to, or
2: oh yeah, yeah. Well, he reveled in the idea that he could almost do anything he wanted.
1: Right. Yeah, he got on Jeter. Y- you know. He... Oh yeah, I mean,
2: yeah, it's I can do anything I want to do. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the owner of the team. I can do anything that I want
1: Let me ask you about Yogi real quick. Just tell me, why the how does the relationship with Yogi become what it becomes?
2: Well, we were friends a long time before. I mean, he was a coach with us for, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. We had always remained friends. And then he had that unfortunate incident, you know, in 85 when he got fired, but he didn't know. He stays away for 15 years. You know, and then when him and George finally patch up their difference, um, I saw him during the wintertime that year in 2000 um, or or 99, I think 2000 is when he he started coming back Mm -hmm. to spring training. But I saw him, and the first thing he tells me is that George invited him come to spring training. Now he knows I still go, so I just told him, "Well, look, whenever you find out your itinerary, you call me, and I'll go pick you up at the airport." (laughs) Well. I forgot how how traditional is. You know, once you say something, that's it. It <laughs> remains that way. So, you know, y- you, if you pick him up one time, you pick him up all the time. So I had to pick him up, you know, in the morning at 7 at the hotel, and we'd go to the park early. He, li- he loved going to the park early, and that was fine. So, you know, we had that routine. I'd pick him up at 7. We'd go to the ballpark. He'd have a little breakfast. Tori would come in at uh, you know at seven thirty eight o'clock. Then they'd go sit in the office and do a little chatting, and then we would dress. We'd go out on the field. He'd watch BP, and then you know after that, him and I would I'd, we'd go back to the to the hotel, and uh, we'd leave at six o'clock, go have some supper, and you know you start the next day. But once you tell him one thing and you do it, <laughs> it remains the same way; it never changes.
1: Yeah, did he? Did you ask him? Were you quizzical about his career and the guys he played with and what New York City was oh, like? Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, that's how I learned about all of the other players that were there because that's what we talk about at night when we were at supper. I just bring out a name and we talk about that guy. <laughs> you know, we talked about. You you learn about all your Yankee guys, and when you finish with them, then you start asking about the opposing guys, you know, like the Williams and K-Lines and all, you know, all of the great guys that he he played against and caught against, you know, so you start talking about them, and he talks about them.
1: It's amazing, too, because when you have a guy who had a career like that, when you win double-digit World Series, when you win three MVPs, when you're back there catching any great pitcher that the Yankees threw out, he caught. He's in the Mazeroski game, which doesn't go. But he plays with Mickey. He plays mm-hmm. with Joe. He bridges the gap. He's he's a coach. He's around all these guys. For all of his reputation of, hey, look, Yogi's kind of funny, I was told that he was a, a really sharp baseball guy. Like much sharp. The reputation of, hey, Yogi well, is sort of.
2: His, his reputation with the Yogiisms overshadows how much intelligence he really has. Yeah.
1: Good baseball talk, good baseball conversation. That's what I was told. He was – and I met him a couple of times down in spring training. I was fortunate enough too. But I always thought, hey, I wonder if he's getting the short end of this. Look, he played it as part of a career, and, and you know, it was sort of a character, which a lot of it was true, but it was sort of a character. I, I wonder if people sort of forget a little bit about, first of all, how damn great he was as a player and all of the things he was around and saw and in, in the middle of.
2: Well – I'm sure people think like that. I mean, I'm sure they have a lot of people think like that. But there are also a lot of people that understand, you know, the truth, I would think. Mm -hmm. And and he does. But he wouldn't have had it any other way. If he could do it all over again, he'd want to do it the same way he did it the first time.
1: All right, well, let's finish up with this. Now, this many years later, 40 years after 78, uh, I I think it's okay to say that you're 67 years old. Um, Do you miss... Anything about the game? Now, you can go down in spring training. You can, I'm sure, anytime the Yankees, whether it's old-timers day or anything else. But do you you miss being competitive? You know, this many years later, is there any part of you that says, oh, man, I...
2: (laughs) Every once in a while. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Every once in a while I'm watching somebody. (laughs) Well, especially somebody that you know is better than what's happening. Like last night, I was watching Severino throw against Cleveland, uh-huh. and he didn't have the—he didn't have a great game. But you know, you think I thought that he made a couple of mistakes, mm-hmm. you know. And you're going like, "Oh, Jesus Christ! How can you do that?" You not you know, you, you know, you get upset because you're watching it and you're saying, "Okay." Do this again, or right. no, you can't do that again. Don't try it, you know. And, you know, when they do it, then it, it gets you upset, yeah. you know, because you watch, you know, and, and you watch him throw, a, you know, you watch him throw fastballs right by a guy. They, they're on it, they're following it, but they're fouling it because they can't hit it. Right. Okay, and then all of a sudden now you throw a changeup or a curveball <laughs> or something and you load the speed and you're throwing it right where he's swing you know, so you go through the roof because you know you've done it, and you're trying to get him to learn. And and Seve's having such a great year that you know you want him to win. You 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 know you you pull it for him to do things um, because you know when you look at him, he's you know that if he continues to to wear a Yankee uniform in 10, 15 years, he's going to set every Yankee record they got.
1: He's filthy. He's I, mean, I mean,
2: that's how he's yeah. so good. To,
1: yeah. So let me, you know. So, but you watch the game today. The game is different. You know, the strikeouts are up. The home runs right. are up. Have you thought right. about if you projected what you were good at into today's game? What kind of pitcher are you with guys? Homer, happy, strikeout. Who gives a? <laughs> no one cares. What? What? What do you think you are in today's game?
2: Well. <laughs> We talk about that every once in a while. that's like at spring training, the old oh, guys. I'm not so sure I could pitch today because we don't play the same type of baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not sure because you know, like when you're playing, like you know, I'm I'm the ace on my staff. When I go out to pitch, I'm not going to give up a lot of runs. I don't need a lot of runs to win. So my teammates are going to scratch and scramble for one or two runs here and there. Because I'm not gonna give up very many. Right. And, and and it's like today you get you get so upset when you see a leadoff double and the guy never touches third base because the next three guys are trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. Yep. Nobody worries about hitting behind the runner yep. or bunting on their own. You know, get I'll get the guy to third and the next guy gets him in. That's how it used to be. Yeah. And I and your your number one pitcher has a cheap run. It might be the only one he needs. Okay, and and you know, but it's not played like that today because it's different.
1: Well, what about so, five, what about uh, five inning starts, six innings? You well, you're patting guys on the back.
2: That, I I laughed at Joe Torre one night when I was his pitching coach. He, he said, "I wish you were pitching for me. I, I wish I had you pitching for me." And I said, "There's no way in hell." He said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "You come up to the mound too much." <laughs> You know, I don't want to see it until the ninth inning. Don't come out there and ask me how I'm feeling in the sixth and the seventh. I know how I feel. <laughs> you know, that's how it used to be, but it's not like that no. anymore. So, uh, um, you know, you you just go what what's going on today. And I understand the game has changed so much. You know that uh, it's not like what when no. we were there. So- we, we were there. We were starters. We threw because you didn't have. Uh, you didn't have the quality of relievers that you had.
1: Yeah, there weren't, there weren't eight or nine of them either. Look, A.J. Ellis, I don't know right. if you know, A.J. Ellis is a catcher. been around like 10 years. So right. I, I tell this story all the time. About a year and a half ago, A.J. Ellis is in town here in Atlanta, and I get a chance, and I've known him now for a while, and I ask him, they were talking about launch angles, and, you know, he's a catcher, oh, so yeah? he gets to see all this right. stuff. He's got a bird's-eye view. I said, A.J., tell me about launch angles. Now, the Dodgers thing was we're going to throw high fastballs And if a guy's got anything close to a twelve-six, that's how we're going to counter it. That's how we're going to counter guys. But he said, Chris, let me just tell you the honest truth. He said, it's not about launch angles. It's not about where we pitch a guy anymore. Here's what it really is. He said, and he's 10 years in, he said, even when I started, it was two swings for me, one for the team. He said, let me tell you what's different. It's three swings for me. Three swings for me. He, he, nobody chokes yeah. up, nobody shortens up, nobody... Right. And it was the most amazing, concise, and to the point... Again, it was... I use it all the time because it should be the title of a book. <laughs> Three <Right>. for me. <laughs> because he said well, that's what he sees.
2: Yeah, well, you know, when you look at what's going on, yeah, because that's why, that's why especially strikeouts are up. Because guys don't shorten up their swing. They don't try to go to the opposite field. They're not trying to make contact to move a guy. They're trying to make contact to hit the ball out of the park. Right. That's basically what their swings are today.
1: And 100 strikeouts. You know, and,
2: that's, and that's where they're going to have a lot of strikeouts because if a ball is close to the plate, they swing.
1: Yeah. yeah I Hank...
2: mean, when we were pitching, if you, you had to throw the ball over the strike zone to get guys to swing because they were patient.
1: Well, it's funny because Hank Aaron told me years ago, if he would have struck out 100 times in a season, nobody would have seen him that whole winter. He would have been too embarrassed to come out of his house.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> you're right. There's a lot of guys that feel that
1: way. Yeah. Well, listen, Ron, this is a blast. Gator, my life, and pinstripes. I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. We did this. You'll ne- listen, we did this 16 years ago. It's been 16 years since you and I had an opportunity to sit down. I'm glad both of us are well, still I'm around.
2: enough. <laughs> Time passes
1: fast. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Listen, I really enjoy this. Yankee fans listen, I'm sure enjoy it. Uh, baseball fans, <clears throat> it was a different time. It was an interesting time. Guys were interesting, as you said. I love what you pointed out. Look, the stories behind the stories are the ones that really aren't told enough. and I'm, that, That's why I'm glad a guy like you and and Darling's written a book. It's, it's nice to hear some of the stuff that we might not be privy to, so I do appreciate mm-hmm. that.
2: Well, thanks for saying
1: so. Yeah. Well, Listen, you're the best. I appreciate it, Ron. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me on. Okay. We'll talk soon. Thanks. All right, Chris. Talk okay. to you in 17 Bye-bye. years. But well, See me in 16. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> see okay. ya. All
2: right, all right. Bye. Bye. A bounce, and they're going to hold Scott at third. And Nettles throws Burlson out, and that is a big, big
0: play. What would it be like coming down to spring training for you, Ron, without Yogi? I'm not so sure if I come. He struck him out. Yes, Yaz tried to check the swing and could not. Guidry
2: gets his third strikeout. Well, we talked about everything. We talked about the players, and that's how I got him to talk about himself. You know, if you knew
0: Yogi really well, he never talked about himself. It was always someone else and having him all to myself, that's how I found
1: out a lot about him and all of the past players. Plug him out. Edry gets his fourth strikeout.
0: I can remember like yesterday, that first day that I walked into the stadium and I saw Yankee Stadium. I had chills that I carried with me every day that I'd walk in and when I'd go see. An imprinted in mind would have seen and n- I've never lost. I
2: it. feel Pinella's after it. He's got it. What a catch by Panella. Made a basket catch going back. Toward the corner, and that retires the side.
0: One of the things I noticed was center field was 430. You know, and you're going like, wow, I can pitch here. Sunshine. Yeah, yeah, I can pitch here. <laughs> and, you know, as a as a starter, a lot of times, that's how I pitched a lot of my games. I threw fastballs just right over the outside part of the plate, you know, to left or right-handed hitters. Here, try to hit the ball out center field. And if you hit it, I take my cap to you. you got to hit it 430. You know, that's a poke to get it out of it.
1: Got it. Stayed away from him, struck out Hobson,
2: one away here in the seventh inning. That's strikeout number five for Gidry. Put in the ballgame as Gidry leaves. Well, there's George Steinbrenner
0: applauding the man who's putting all that money in the bank for him, Ron Gidry. And the Yankee bench congratulating Gidry. The 1978 Yankee season might have been the most famous soap opera in baseball history. The lead actors in the drama owner George Steinbrenner who fought and fired his manager, Billy Martin, after Billy Martin told the press that Reggie Jackson and George deserved each other. One's a born liar, the other's convicted. The manager who feuded with his players, suspending Reggie for five days after a game against Kansas City, in which Reggie defied Billy by attempting to bunt. The players who butted heads with one another. The hurt feelings and catfights. The drama had a full complement of characters. Come to think of it, I'm not sure whether it was a soap opera or a three-ring circus. And it took place on the biggest stage in sports, New York City, and on the most popular team in the history of America's national pastime. The fireworks and explosions rocked the entire country on the front and back pages of the newspaper, on television, and on sports radio. In the span of a couple of years, I had gone from relative anonymity, a good old boy from Lafayette, Louisiana, to become the ace of the pitching staff. I knew the team depended on me as much as anybody to win. On the other hand, I was never the source of the team's drama. The reasons varied, but other folks from Reggie to Billy to George to Sparky Lyle were central figures of the discontent. I didn't have a beef with anybody. I tended to keep to myself and focus on doing my job in the best way I knew how. But that didn't mean I didn't observe what was going on. I was never far from it, but because I wasn't personally involved, I felt like I had the right distance to get some perspective about not just what happened, but why it turned out the way that it did, with us winning it all. You see, I'm not sure we would have won the World Series if all of that didn't go down. We may not have won if Billy remained our manager. We may not have won if our guys had issues but didn't hash them out. The postmortems of the 1978 team centered on one fundamental question how the heck did such a dysfunctional cast of stars and misfits manage to win it all?